See there now. See there it worked. So so let it go. So now it's don't touch it. But you know what I'm going to do then? Get bring my chair over here and I'll just babysit it. That's all. Okay. Sorry, I'll just have to sit by it. Okay. All right. Okay, now it's working. Now we've got it. Okay. Hello, can you hear me? I'm Pamela Pierce. I'm on staff of Penn American Center, and I am very happy to welcome you tonight to the 19th New Writers Evening. Um, Marvelous things have happened as a result of this evening. People have gotten agents, contracts, books have been published, audiences have been very much pleased, and um, I've had a good time working on these events, so success all around. I'd like to start off by thanking um, Encarnita Quinlan, who owns this wonderful bookstore, and her very efficient and helpful and kind staff for helping us all to get packed in here tonight. So thank you all. Um, the way that it will work this evening is that um, the introducers will introduce the introducees briefly and then the young writers will read from their work. Before we do this, um, before I turn it over to Frank McShane, I would like to bring your attention to the yellow flyer that everyone has on his or her seat and make a plea for your help. Penn has um, developed something absolutely wonderful and necessary which is a fund for writers and editors with AIDS. We have money, and we're very anxious to, to give help where help is needed, but we think that there may be um, writers and editors around the country who are eligible for these funds who do not know about it. Um, I would love it if you would take this flyer and send it to a friend in Iowa, send it to somebody in Florida. Um, Today I got in the mail a newspaper from Maine, uh, Maine Writers Association newsletter, and on the front page they, someone had sent this to them and they had completely reprinted it on the first page, on the front page. So now writers and editors in Maine will know about it. Please help us. Put it on a bulletin board, send it to a friend, or if you know somebody who can use the fund, let them know that we have money to give. Thank you. Frank? Okay. You can sit or you can stand, whichever you'd like. I'm just gonna I'm gonna watch this. Okay. okay. It's a great pleasure to be here with my friend Mark uh, Cuvelis, whom you'll be hearing from in, in a minute. Uh, I think one thing that tends to be often forgotten in readings is the reader. That is to say, the the uh, uh, sorry, I mean the audience. Uh, the reader is so you so often uh, caught up with his own or her own uh, work that the uh, what is being said uh, is often uh, forgotten. And I think uh, often of uh, what Ford Maddox Ford said about uh, the audience, the audience that he would have liked, and his ideal audience. He once said that uh, he had in mind when he wrote a a, a very uh, sitting across. Uh, from a fire on a fireplace with a close friend and listening uh, quietly while he told his story and he told gave another example of, of the kind of uh, audience that is ideal 
as the little boy who's uh, reading a book and is so enchanted uh, by what he's reading that he has no uh, awareness at all of the world around him. I think those are the uh, readers that all writers uh, would like to have. And it takes some work to get that sort of reader. And the, the work, was something wrong? Okay, sorry, Frank. Okay. All right, I try it again. I won't repeat. Try it again. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Worn out story. That's better. Oh, it's much better. We're <laughs> <laughs> alive. Okay. Um, but I will say that in r in listening to Gloria, which you'll be you'll soon be hearing, you'll see you'll hear a writer who has taken the care to make his his work uh, very accessible and very moving. So with great pleasure, introduce Mark Ellis. Thank you, Frank. I'd like to thank the Penn Club. Mostly, I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I'm going to read the, just the first few pages of my novel. If I can get the chair. Okay. It's the floor, I think. Yeah. It's not the chair. Okay. Um, just the first few pages of a novel I'm working on. And um, I think that these pages will give you some idea of what it's about and how I'm going about writing it. It's called Gloria. Her name was not Gloria at all. It was Elizabeth, and she was named after our mother. But Gloria was the name she died with, because that's what the kid called her when he led the police out to the ditches and raised his handcuffed hands and pointed at the soft earth between the water and the exposed root of an oak and said, that's where we put Gloria. So in Lauren's book, in the movie they made of it, my sister is always called Gloria. Lauren loved that name so much. The dark, low tone of it and its bright, ironical promise of glory. That when her book came in the mail, I was surprised she hadn't called it Gloria. Now I'm just as glad she saved the better title for me. My name's Marvin Stone. I own Stones, a restaurant and bar at the bottom of University Avenue. My sign revolves on the roof, shining in the shadow of the overpass. Its blue haze pours through the skylight into my office. I'm here now at my desk. It's a little after three in the afternoon. It's still raining. Downstairs, my people are preparing to open. Before the customers come, there's a kind of calm in place. And now it's so quiet I can hear the hushed swoosh of traffic on the avenue. Yesterday, driving down to Stones, my wipers working against a steady downpour, I noticed quick blood on the bright marquee of the UC Theater. Three young women were buying tickets. Their hair glistened under the bright lights. The shoulders of their coats were dark with rain quick blood. Why the college kids like it so much, I don't know. I've never seen it. I didn't go when it first came out four or five years ago, or when it started to come back to the revival houses. As you can imagine, the last thing in the world I wanted to see was a movie about my murdered sister. But it always comes back. A temptation. 
Part of me wanted to park, feed a meter, hurry through the rain to the ticket booth. Part of me wanted to see it, to know. I go to that theater all the time. On slow nights, I often duck out of my place for an hour or so to catch a glimpse of an old movie. The girl who sells tickets knows me by sight. I'm the tall, gray-bearded, balding man who buys his tickets during the middle of the movie, who often leaves before it's over. And I know her. She pouts as I lay my five in the wooden slot. She pushes a dollar and a torn ticket back at me. Her hands, plump as a child's, nails bitten, remind me of my sister's hands. The day I let Lizbeth go, she sat picking at the ragged fringe of a bandage. She just kept picking. Now I can't let the memory go, like my mind keeps picking at it, remembering. So I know this ticket girl, and I like to think there's a kind of intimacy between us, as though she knows why I watch the movies for only an hour at a time, why I like to sit for an hour under the finely focused light in a darkness as safe as sleep. Yesterday I didn't stop at the theater. I resisted temptation and drove on to work. It was that hour of the afternoon when the lights of passing cars suddenly flash on and when I parked behind stones, the street lights glowed in the branches of the city trees. I came straight up here to my office and hunted through my desk for Lauren's book. It was in the bottom left-hand drawer, locked up with the ledgers, stuffed in the padded brown envelope it came in. I read through the supper rush. Then I asked my barman, Ronson, to bring me up some soup and coffee, and I kept on reading. I'd read the book before. That day it came in the mail, skimmed it, really, looking for glimpses of Lauren, for some sign she still might love me. I didn't much care about her portrait of Gloria. Lauren and I were lovers when she wrote Quick Blood. This is one of the many facts omitted from her book. I lived with her in her student ghetto one-bedroom apartment where we went to sleep serenaded by sirens and where I woke up alone listening to Lauren tapping the quiet keys of her computer. As she worked, she grew paler and thinner, more distracted, more beautiful. Sometimes, sometimes she read her work out loud to me. I remember her voice, a soft, serious monotone, and the shy and hopeful way she looked up at me when she finished reading. I would hold her head in my hands, kiss her hair, tell her how good her writing was, even though I usually didn't listen to the words themselves, but just to the serious sounds they made. Lauren wrote her book in Berkeley from March until September of the following year. And sometime during that second June, she stopped asking me about my memories of my sister or my theories about the motives of Gloria. She stopped reading to me. Late at night, when I came home from Stones, I'd find her working. One night near the end, I remember lying alone in bed watching television while Lauren rode away and the sky outside the window slowly lightened to blue. Then, when most of the college kids were moving their skis and stereos into our building, 
Lauren loaded her dented Datsun and headed for Hollywood. If you never read Quick Blood, you might want to go out and get a copy. It was a bestseller, and I still see beat-up copies of the paperback in the used bookstores in Berkeley. It's blue, and it says Quick. No, it's blue, and it says Quick Blood in raised red letters. By Lauren Ogilvy, it says in black. My sister's picture's on the cover. The famous one that was in the papers of her sitting in the sun with her hair blowing back. She's smiling. She's wearing a tank top and there's a curved black shadow beneath, between her breasts. My sister could look different in every picture you took of her. And in 9 out of 10 she didn't make a sexy impression on me. I've got pictures at home that would break your heart knowing what happened. You can usually find Lauren's book among the other used true crime exposés. If it's not there, you might try Sociology of the Women's Studies section. Once I even found it among the mysteries. Quick blood sounds like a mystery story. I can see how a hurried clerk could get fooled. I finished reading close to midnight last night. My place was closed, I could tell, because Ronson had turned the tape player up. I looked through my desk, no, as I looked through my desk for a blank ledger, I could hear Percy Sledge singing down in the dining room. I wrote the first two paragraphs of this straight out. Then I stopped. I was too keyed up to concentrate. Ronson knocked and I closed the ledger, slid it into my top drawer. I told him to come in. He held the black pouch in his hand. You all right, he said. Ronson's tended bar for me for almost ten years. In that time, I've never stayed alone in my office all evening long. I told him I'd been reading, that I'd fallen asleep. He put the pouch on my desk, started gathering the dishes, my bowl, my cup and saucer. I asked him how business was, and he shrugged, meaning what did I expect on a rainy Wednesday? Ronson's a black man who wears his face like a mask. He stood in the blue light from my sign, holding my dishes in one hand, watching me from behind his quiet, tired, after-work face. Do you want anything, he said. I told him no, and he left me alone. I unzipped the pouch and dumped the bundled bills and receipts on my desk, found my current ledger, and started counting and recounting. It often happens lately. I lose count. I remember things. Like it's not numbers I'm adding up, but moments and people I knew and loved and lost. The first time Lauren showed up at my restaurant, I was behind the bar. Late afternoon, it must have been 4.30, quarter to five, and I was behind the bar helping Ronson get ready to open. He was in the cellar with his list, rooting around in the dark. I was pouring house wine, six empty liter bottles on the bar, an orange plastic funnel stuck in one of them, a gallon jug heavy and cold in my hands. I heard her knocking and looked up, and there she was, at the window. Behind her, cars flashed by, bright as the cars of a carnival ride. She cupped her face to the window, peered in. 
A waiter was setting the tables. Ronson had pushed away from the cellar door. He glanced at me to see what to do. I reminded him we opened at five, and he held up his hand and showed her five fingers. She called through the window. I want to talk to Mr. Stone. Maybe she was looking for a job. Maybe she was a customer hunting for a lost umbrella. Whatever she wanted, there was no sense talking to her about it through the window. I said, all right. The kid pointed his handful of forks at the back door. It's hard to separate how she looked that day from my general memory of her. The only thing that sticks in my mind is that she was wearing a black turtleneck sweater like one of my waiters. I teased her about it later. I told her I thought she was trying to trick me into hiring her by dressing the part of a waiter as a waiter and tables was a matter of costume. The turtleneck was pure coincidence. But if it had been a trick, it wouldn't have worked. Lauren lacked a certain uh, waitress-like quality. Call it uh, grace. She was tall, awkward, uh, gawky almost, but pretty, skin like milk. And something about the way her hands were connected to her wrists made me think of birds. They seemed fragile. No, it was the bones. They were fragile, maybe even hollow. Her hands had a way of fluttering up toward her face when she talked. Nervous, bird-like hands. She came toward the bar and put her briefcase on the stool and smiled at me. I noticed her small, even teeth, the high, blade-like bridge of her nose. She said, You must be the easiest man in Berkeley to find. Then her pale hand flew up. She pointed at the ceiling and said, Your name lights up the sky. I'm running a restaurant here, I said. I'm not hiding from anybody. She smiled at me again and looked out at the dining room where the kid was lighting candles, closing the curtains, bringing the darkness in. The other waiters sat in the booth on the mezzanine, folding napkins, smoking, eating soup. Ronson crawled out of the cellar, a case of wine in his arms, his list in his teeth. We were almost ready. What could I do for her, I wanted to know. I want to talk to you, she said. It's personal. Ronson heaped his case onto the bar, gave the strange woman a glance. All right, he said. Me and you crowd me here. I got work to do. I slipped out from behind the bar. Personal? She looked at Ronson, who was sliding bottles into the racks overhead. Can we talk? I said, what are you selling? I'm Lauren, she said. Ogilvy. I waited for her to answer my simple question. You're Marvin. My friends call me Stone like my sign says, and I told her so, but I was getting impatient. Like an itch, I could feel five o'clock creeping up. There's something holy about opening time, the still moment at the beginning of the night. In a minute, my doors would be open. You never know what kind of trouble could come pouring in. What do you want, I asked her, to talk to you, Boss, Ronson had found my keys by the register. He was holding them up for me to see, so I nodded, and he tossed them over the bar. I remember the glittering cluster arcing toward me. I remember snatching it out of the dark. About glory, Lauren said. 
I didn't say anything. I turned away from her, leaving the word Gloria hanging in the air, a cluster of anger and fear and confusion arcing toward me. It was straight up five o'clock and I had my keys in my hand. I had something I had to do, open my restaurant, and I didn't have to stand there talking to her. In the mirrored vestibule, I worked the lock. It was bright where the mirrors caught the light and I could see myself hunched over the glass door. I thought, I'm opening my place. The thought forming into words, pushing the thought of Gloria away. I was doing this very simple thing, inserting a key, turning it, feeling the bolt slide. Here was something to take refuge in. A moment. Slowly, deliberately, with all the seriousness of a ritual, I pushed the door open. Traffic rumbled on the overpass. I flicked the doorstop down with the toe of my shoe. The rubber tip caught the sidewalk, held. I was open. Inside, Lauren was still standing by the bar, but I avoided looking her in the eye. I watched Ronson, who was at the register counting his bank. I watched the teller quick flick of his wrist. I said, I don't know anybody named Gloria. Your sister, she said, Lisbeth. I looked at her, surprised. I said, why'd you call her Gloria then, if you knew her name? It was the name she wanted. I respect that. To me, Gloria was just a name in the papers. By the time she started calling herself Gloria, Lisbeth was lost, gone. She's old news. Thought you guys would have forgotten about her by now. I can't forget, Lauren said, and neither can you. My sister's murder is the central fact of my life. I live with it every day like a blind man lives in the dark. Lauren had some nerve walking into my place, clear out of nowhere, saying that name. But she seemed shy and aggressive at the same time, so earnest I couldn't help being a little interested. Part of me wanted to talk to her. Part of me wanted to know. Thank you all very much. My name is George Plimpton. I'm the editor of the uh, Paris Review, which started in Paris in 1953. Uh, the managing editors, almost from the very beginning of this magazine, have been not only managing editors, but writers, um, tapping away when they were supposed to be um, managing. Uh, Harold Humes, the first managing editor of the magazine, wrote two remarkable novels, uh, one called Men Die, the other The Underground City. Uh, he was succeeded by a writer named John Train, who writes mostly about finance. His latest book is called Valsalva's Maneuver. And if you wonder what that is, that is the uh, maneuver that you do when you're descending in an airplane and you hold your nose and pop your ears. That's Valsalva's maneuver. And you can tell 
the person see you're sitting next to when you next do it that you were performing Salva's <laughs> uh, maneuver. Uh, Jay McCulloch was the managing editor of the Paris Review starting in 1964. Uh, what am I saying? 1984. Uh, uh, she weathered it well. She was probably the most earnest and Remarkable of our managing editors in that during her tenor, uh, the Parish Review really published, through her observation in many cases, uh, some really remarkable writers. Rick Bass, Jay McEnany, his first uh, work appeared in the Parish Review. Rick Bass, his first work appeared there. Mona Simpson, who was sitting here in the second row, her first work appeared in the magazine, very largely through the discernment of the managing editor, who, without my knowing it, was tapping away on a novel. Uh, I've not heard it or read it, so I sit here uh, as excited as I'm sure you all are to hear uh, the work of Jay McCulloch. all you need to know except that the first few lines take place um, as an entry in the narrator's journal and I think it will be apparent when that ends Sunday morning so quiet I can hear the water gurgle up through the pipes no sun again everything a gray the flat midwinter Parisian light filtering in through the blinds on Sunday afternoon, I walked to Adine's studio in the 9th arrondissement. It had been her apartment ten years earlier, when we had met as students at the Beaux-Arts. It was not much larger than a chambre de bonne, up a maze of crooked streets where one might be more likely to find a mouse than a person. Over the years, Adine had furnished it with objects she had found on the street. In her kitchen was an old sewing machine table and a cupboard we had carted home from an alley in the 13th one night years ago. The bookshelves were Adine's latest find. Two filing cabinets without drawers, rescued from her concierge's garbage heap. Only the bed was her own, a large mahogany bed that had been her parents. It occupied most of the room. Adine now lived across the river with her boyfriend, Dennis, but on Sunday, she invited guests to her studio to visit. When I arrived, she was talking a friend through a crisis. I somehow get lost in the translation, the friend Robert was saying. They don't get me the French. Robert was a journalist just transferred from New York to the International Herald Tribune. The women, for example, they don't want to talk to me. Five seconds, and they look right over my shoulder. He shrugged. Aideen was pouring tea, an elaborate scarf tied up her hair. You have to be more patient, she said. Robert, patience. No. He cast a glance at his cup and shook his head. Darling, do we have any milk? I brought a milk from Aideen's window ledge, where she left it to stay cold. No, it's hopeless, Robert went on. He counted on his fingers. I have a good job. I make a good living. He straightened. I come from a very good family. Aideen was searching for something in the cupboard. 
A cigarette hung from her mouth. You're also sexy, she added. He smiled. Aye, Dean, darling. Then he was serious again. Last night was the worst. I went to a party for work. I lasted 10 minutes. What did you do? Nothing. I was standing there, being myself. No one had a thing to say to me. You were speaking French? Clearly I was speaking French. He made a fist and lightly pounded the table. My French, he said, is perfect. You only stayed 10 minutes, though, I put in. It's true. I went home. First I took a Valium. Then I started calling the States. Call after call, desperate to hear the voice of a friend. No one was home. I listened to their machines. I left rather frantic messages. If the truth be known, I told a few of the machines I was dying. I didn't know how else to get them to call me back. No, if I don't soon assimilate, the phone bill will be a disaster. Robert looked up at me. Sally, what are you doing? Doing? I was pouring myself a glass of wine from a bottle I had found on Nadine's ledge. It was too early in the day to be drinking, but I was oblivious. Robert was dropping cigarette ashes on the table, even as Nadine wiped. What are you doing in Paris, I mean? Ah, that. I'm escaping my life. She's visiting, Nadine said, to see if she wants to move back here. I'm escaping my life, I said again. I took a long swallow. I've been known to pull disappearing acts recently, see, falling undercover for weeks at a time. Nadine laughed. She's so dramatic. You're both so dramatic, the two of you. I guess you could say I'm gearing up, I told Robert. Gearing up for what? Behind his glasses, Robert's eyes were green like pine trees. They were wide, extravagant eyes, taking everything in. He blinked. For the next part of my life, I've come to Paris because, I don't know, it seems easier to construct the plot from a distance. Sally teaches at the Art Institute in Brooklyn, Nadine explained. She's a painter. Nadine was playing with her tea bag, dipping it in and out of her cup. And she's escaping a man. Nadine, who's Robert going to tell? People's answering machines? Who heard him? He doesn't have any friends. I do love man stories, though, Robert said. Now he was smiling, particularly when I'm not the man involved. And I give very good advice. Here's my first bit. I don't know you well, but Sally, darling, go home. He shook his head. Don't take it for granted there, all that lovely dirt and noise. Yeah, said Aideen, the brilliant noise of havoc. Aideen hated New York. Since she had arrived in Paris as a student 15 years ago, she had rarely left. Robert sighed. No, for me, it's really too terrible here. I absolutely must go back. So go. Why don't one of you girls marry me, he said next. Why not? It would be perfect. One of you really should. <laughs> My mother would like it, I said. I chipped away at the paint on Aideen's crate. I'm going to marry a Frenchman, said Aideen, or a half. A half what? You know, half French, half something else. American, said Robert. God, please say a half American. Maybe I should go home, he said. But my life in New York these days suddenly seemed no more than a very small room where I tried to stay calm and to think clear thoughts. 
in Paris, living in my sister Iso's studio, the paint peeling off the walls, the water gurgling up through the pipes, and the door hanging off at an angle was perfect in its way. Lying in the studio cot at night, with the rooftops carving a line against the sky, had the serenity of train travel, that long lulling hum. It made me feel I was moving somewhere, moving on with my life. I am downcast beyond anything, Robert said. He was making long lines of sugar from a mound he poured on the table. Don't do that, sweetie, said Aideen. It'll bring bugs. Bugs? Ha! There are no bugs in Paris, just pigeons. Robert's hand gestured vaguely toward the window. All that cooing on ledges. You think they'd get sick of it. You think they'd shut up. He stopped. Perhaps I'm having a nervous breakdown, he said. That's probably it. Robert said, Aideen, you're just in the middle of an adjustment period. You've only been here a month. I'm in the middle of a nervous breakdown, I said. Come on, said Aideen. Somehow, she had the capacity to make everything look better from any possible edge or angle. That was Aideen. She waved a hand in the air. You're both just adjusting. Robert put his hands together on the table. Sally, tell me if we must discuss your problems instead of mine. I do love man stories. <laughs> Not me, said Aideen. I don't. Sorry, but sleazebags sort of depress me, you know? It isn't worth the tell, I said to Robert. It's hardly worth going into. Aideen's right. I was pleading up my skirt, making little accordion lines in the black fabric. I don't know. I told you. I run off to Paris to hide. Ha! Robert put his arms in the air. I love this. This woman takes plane trips like I take Valium. He nodded, his eyes bright. Maybe things like men are always a problem, I said. I am a man, said Robert, and I am anything but a problem. Excuse me. I may have a problem, but I am not myself a problem. <laughs> he pounded his index finger on the table. And I don't run off to foreign countries to try to solve them. Foreign countries are your problem, I say. He slumped. That, I'm afraid, is true. Aideen was shifting at the window. I could tell she was bored, ready to get across town to see Dennis. Sally, she said, why don't you take Robert with you somewhere? With me? Yeah, show him something of Paris. Your Paris. I don't know. Show him what it was like to grow up here. You grew up here, said Robert? How could you stand it? I opened the leather date book I had been carrying around. Mostly, I used it to make sketches. I would be happy to do something that would bring an end to your yammering, Robert, I said, flipping pages. All the days were free. I knew that. I so coming home, I so coming home, I so coming home. I had written it crossed out on three consecutive Fridays. It didn't seem now my sister would ever appear. Somewhere else I had written end of April, though I didn't know what it meant. Next to it I had written March with a question mark. I was always doing this, establishing deadlines for myself in the gray of winter and then forgetting what they meant, what I had been planning to accomplish by what date. Robert peered over my shoulder. You're as boring as I am, he said. That's good, I like that. I like not being the only person in Paris without a plan. We made a date to meet in my studio the following afternoon. 
It was raining when Robert arrived, and I was pacing, listening to the disc jockey on a local radio station play American pop tunes. We be together tonight, he was announcing. Hey. Oh dear, Robert said, standing in the studio doorway. Drops of rainwater had collected in small translucent balls on the wool of his coat. They dripped down over the lenses of his glasses and off his coat onto the floor. The door was open, he explained. I know, I'm trying to get some air in here. Sometimes the fumes from the paint. He crossed the room to a painting Edine had recently critiqued. He stood with one foot in front of the other, his arms crossed. It's a forest, he said. Yeah, it is, but it's not right. It's not right? No. The colors I used for the trees, the oranges, the pinks. Edine said it seemed candy-colored, not real, too bright. My hands fell to my sides. She said it looked fake, finally, like a forced happiness. Robert squinted. He walked to the next. I prefer this, he said. It was a large painting of a girl's head. Over time, layers of paint had built into rises and crevices on the canvas. Dark patches of brown and green passed over the girl's cheeks. Her eyes were cast down, but her mouth was full. Braids like mudded foothills fell to the bottom of the canvas. It seemed she was becoming monstrous. It's starting to look like a relief map, I told Robert. I mean, look at this. I traced a finger lightly down one braid, my finger bumping along the overworked paint. Yeah, I see what you mean, hills and valleys. It wasn't my plan. This one kind of got away from me. What were you hoping for? Oh, I don't know. A little more self-containment, I guess. I like it, he said. She seems like she's got a lot going on. What's her name? Her name? I don't know. Head so far. Girl's head. Robert outlined her lips with his finger. She's in a pout, he said. He stood back and made a pout himself. I'd call her haughty. He looked at me with steady eyes. Haughty head. Outside, suddenly, there was the noise of the school children racing into the courtyard. It must have stopped raining. That's the least safe children next door. Robert went to the window. He watched them. They always sound noisier in French, he said. This is good, Robert, that it stopped raining. I want to take you somewhere. He sat on the cot. We can't just stay here? No, I spend my life here. We have to go out. We have to show you something. He looked around. I like it here. You can still show me something here. He looked at the postcards of ISOs I had hung on the wall by the cot. Like this, what's all this? Postcards for my sister. This is her studio, see? She's in Cairo, though, doing research. I'm waiting for her to come back. She said by Thanksgiving, but that was weeks ago. So what's she like, your sister? He was reading the messages on the cards. I don't know. You don't know? Seriously, I haven't a clue. She's my half-sister. She's 20 years older than I am, so we never lived together or anything. I'm hoping she'll return before I have to go back to teach next semester. It would be nice to get to know her. In the meantime, I collect the postcard she sends me. 
also the one she receives. I'm getting to know her indirectly, through the mail, sometimes over the phone. She calls and we tell each other things about the weather. She tells me she's been delayed another week. It goes on like that. I learn little things. This week, she called to tell me she struck up an affair with a 20-year-old traffic cop. She said they run in the sprinklers together after he gets off his beat. I like that, Robert said. He shifted his legs on the cot, eager. I like that one a lot. I was pulling on my coat. Come on, I said, get up. We're on a mission. What mission? Something I've been meaning to do ever since I got here in September. You're the perfect person to take along. He stood slowly. Where are we going, he asked. Because I'm only so-so when it comes to adventure. I took him down the Rue Mobile, where vendors spray out, splay out trays of vegetables, fruits, and flowers, to the Rue Lafayette, and over to the Avenue de l'Opéra, past all the banks and boutiques, down to the Rue de Rivoli. He walked beside me with his hands in the pockets of his overcoat, his head bent. Don't walk like a fucking New Yorker, Robert. Pick your head up and slow down a bit. I skipped beside him to keep up. Do not give me marching orders, he said. This is not an army. He walked faster. Although I do admit to feeling an enemy camp. He wrapped his coat more tightly around him. The air was cold. The sky, gray now, clear now, was gray like slate. Enemy camp? For starters, you lied to me, didn't you? Lied to you? He said it as a simple fact. You've been married, he said. Only single people, I was thinking, would present such a statement, a simple fact. I didn't lie to you, Robert. I just didn't tell you was all. I might have told you someday. You never know. People are funny about it sometimes. 30-year-old woman, already married, unmarried. You should be more like your sister, Robert said. I really think so. My sister? You don't even know my sister. Yeah, but the traffic cop, the sprinklers, his hands circled the air as he spoke. Maybe you should be getting out more. You know, meeting people. He kicked a loose piece of paper that had blown into the street. Never mind. You have yet, ma pauvre, to appreciate my superior advice. We reached the entrance to the Tuileries Gardens, and I took his arm. It was quiet, a few people walking in the park. Without the leaves on the chestnut trees, it was bare seeming. All gravel, little signs of life. We walked down the steps and across the carousel. At the gate I stopped, still holding Robert's arm in mine. An old woman was there. It may well have been the same old woman from my childhood, patrolling the ride. This, I said to Robert, is where I grew up. Where you grew up? Robert, I was beginning to notice repeated things. A good way to assimilate to a foreign country, I knew, though I didn't know if he did it out of true bewilderment or for effect. But what I wanted to show him suddenly bewildered me. I wanted to show him what I remembered from my mother's photographs. My younger sister and me at the Tuileries Gardens in our matching dresses, me hoisting her up on one of the paint-shipped horses, Long afternoons spent this way, riding around in circles, 
straining to skewer one of the brass rings held by the old woman of Bargaton as our horse went past. Beside me, Robert shifted. He hunched his shoulders in the cold. Suddenly, it seemed to me what I might have been looking for in returning here was long gone. Despite the familiar views, it didn't seem like home anymore. We watched a few children board the ride, speaking a high, rapid French I almost didn't understand anymore. I caught words, a few phrases of their simple pleas for attention. Encore, maman, one child cried, a sturdy blonde girl, about six, I guess. She kicked her legs as her mother went to remove her from the horse. Encore, she wailed. Their desires are so innocent, I was thinking, but to them the stakes are so high. The mother gave in with a tired nod of her head. Une fois, she said, settling the girl back on the horse, passing the woman a few francs for the second ride. I smiled at the mother. I understand, I wanted my smile to say. I wanted to share a gentle complicity, but her face was a clenched line. She didn't smile back. She leaned her elbows on the fence and watched as the machine started whirring. The children's faces brightened, their batons already stroking the air. You know, to me, I started, but I stopped. I didn't think I could explain it properly. And even if I got Robert up there on a horse with me, I didn't know if it was possible to feel again. The soft rumble of the carousel engine starting up, the brass rings in the distance, the baton in your hand, and everything just about to happen, the future about to take hold. Okay, I'm testing. I'm testing to see if the mic is picking up sufficiently on this tape. I'm standing about a foot away, or even a little less, from the microphone. Now, I'm a planning committee member. I'm quite far away from the microphone. I'm at the other end of the table. I'm seeing, I'm turning away, I'm turning back. I'm seeing if the microphone is picking up a single thing I'm saying, and we hope they all talk at least this loud. Okay, I'm in a farther way. I'm probably eight feet now from the mic, and I'll bet it's not recording. This is funny. Okay, I'm right up next to the mic. Now let's see if this worked.
really warming up back. Frederick, you're on. Good evening. I'm Frederick Tuffman. I direct the graduate program at the City College of New York. And I would have um, just been ready to read a brief statement about Aurelie Sheehan, except that the Mr. Plimpton's plug for Paris Review gives me courage <coughs> to say some words about the graduate program at City College, because Aurelie comes from a line, although unpublished uh, as she is, a line of students at the college who are wonderful writers and have won, uh, won prizes and have done some wonderful work, including Lindsay Abrams, Oscar Uelos, who was just nominated for the National Book Award, um, Ted Mooney and Brian Kitely, and is soon to be published in uh, July, uh, Walter Mosley's novel, The Devil in a Blue Dress. That's our pedigree. Orly Sheehan came to us from New England, which is less a place than a disposition. In fact, she came to us from New Hampshire some two years ago to study writing in the graduate program at the City College. And to live in her first apartment somewhere in Queens, near an airport, where, the where are the skyscrapers and the museums and the galleries? Where, she wondered, is the stuff of New York? Several months later, and after struggles mostly about money, she deserted the airport and discovered the joys of living in the Lower East Side where presently she remains, her feet treading the alphabet avenues, her mind on fir trees and cold lakes. Not that the New England pastoral informs her writing. Orly Sheen is not a Yankee in that way. It is not Thoreau or Sarah on Judith who breathe through her fictions, but Emily Dickinson. She of the exact compressions and startling metaphor and of the wry, twisting, and mischievous wit bone-dry humor, melodic, and acerbic. Orly Sheen. I'm going to read tonight from a novel I'm working on called Look at the Moon. Ah, beauty. On her better days, Samantha thinks it exists. She does not live for pleasure, but for the absence of pain. When she is in bed, she moves the pillows or pulls the blanket that oppresses her big toe for that reason. She exists in a middle ground of her own <coughs> making. But sometimes pleasure creeps in unannounced. Just the other night, while she waited for sleep to bite, the scent of lavender blew over from her bedside table. A feather touched her leg. Beauty is always like that, not one, but two elements mixing together. Her relatives think of her as a sweet girl. She wears a white sweater buttoned up to the neck. She asks her grandmother questions about God. Her curiosity is delicate enough to add to the grandmother's sense of power. Between her shoulders swings the crucifix the old woman gave her for confirmation. There is the tiniest pinpoint of a diamond in the middle, embedded in a mirror, chiseled to make the gem look bigger. She likes the diamond and always thinks of it as the size it pretends to be. She never once considered the cross just a cheap piece of metal. 
Her grandmother, still alive to answer questions, sends Samantha $5 a year. <laughs> Samantha smiles keenly at medical attendants, policemen, building managers. She's no victim of the past. She hasn't sued anyone, divorced anyone, stepped on anyone's toes, not even by accident. So she is happy, perfectly content and streamlined as she walks down the street, buoyed with confidence when she remembers that at home she has a closet full of her own clothes, stained and misshapen, that her bookshelf is lined with books she has read or at least looked at, that in her purse rests an address book with names penned in, names of people who approximate the definition of friends. She goes to the place the lawyers go. She leans toward them in an effort to hear. Jail terms, they fascinate her. She spoons ice cream in her mouth, meditating on the numbers, one month, eight months, 300 years. <laughs> she listens and watches the man at the other end of the counter, holding his head away from her. He's blowing his nose over and over, victim of a romantic disaster? Perhaps he needs a friend, someone to talk to. Samantha imagines the Eiffel Tower, marble tables, heads bent together under an umbrella. And then the law reaches her through the other ear. You would never find Samantha in jail. Never, never, never. The therapist asks what's wrong. Samantha is a magazine on the couch, colorful, well-edited, folded over. I'd like to tell you something interesting for a change, but it seems nothing has particularly gone wrong in my life. As you know, I was hoping to pin my neurosis on a minor but terrifying child abuse episode. I even had the man picked out, that tall, red-haired friend of my father. That would explain my aversion to red-haired men. But nothing of the sort has come up. What's the point? Should we try hypnosis again? It's up to you, Samantha. I have some free time next week. We need at least two hours for a special session. And of course, the rate is double per hour. Of course, you have that much more of my unconscious to work with when I'm under. <laughs> the therapist looks like her father and mother. He looks like her brother, best friend, and the girl in nursery school who punched and broke her tiny bean-shaped nose. Samantha thinks for a moment of her sex life. That is what's important here. She's got a sexual urge, it seems, watery as a desert mirage. But where's the thirsty traveler? Do I look different when I'm under hypnosis? She coyly asks. How do you think you might look, the therapist says, stifling a yawn. Samantha thinks, I might look like Ingrid Bergman or Tess of the Durbervilles. She uncrosses and recrosses her legs, exposing, remembering, and recovering a run in her stocking. She looks out the window, oh, to be a bird. Writing the check, her hand shakes. She is sorry to leave the therapist to whom she has just told a dream. 
She feels that paying for this experience <coughs> cheapens it. <coughs> she now wishes she hadn't mentioned the dream at all. On the memorandum section of the check, she writes, for the favor of an ear. She smiles at the therapist's crotch on her way to the door. <laughs> Samantha counts out pennies at the grocery store, carries massive bags on the bus, requests receipts from taxi drivers, asks too many questions of the doctor, tells waitresses in all honesty what she thinks of the meal, sends greeting cards on any plausible occasion, separates the paper from the plastic from the metal in her garbage, stores magazines from 1978, buys mothballs and spray starch, writes letters to the editor and to certain product headquarters, records people's birthdays by their names in her address book, feels guilty for dreaming someone she knows is dying of cancer when that person calls out of the blue the next morning. It was her grandmother, the old penny pincher herself, the great Catholic of the East Coast. The first cigarette Samantha ever smoked was from the lips of this very woman. Samantha stole the butt from the ashtray and brought it up to her room while the rest of the family drank coffee. Ever since she was little, this woman has been entering Samantha's lungs like a quiet, creeping gas, <laughs> making her voice squeaky and her prospects for survival less sure. How nice of you to call, Samantha says before she can stop herself. She surveys her room anxiously, in her mind putting away any incriminating evidence, the paraphernalia of a life rejected by the church. Samantha will ferret out any sign of sloth or pleasure for its own sake, other than small pleasures, of course, pleasures so mean that to enjoy them, one also wants to commit suicide on the spot. <laughs> no, her apartment from this angle looks convincingly ascetic. Only don't look too long at the bed, hard and flat, covered squarely by a natty practical throw, even the pillows seemingly sewn to the mattress as if to prevent spontaneous reactions. Looking at that bed too long would turn even a confirmed Catholic girl into a slut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm recovering fine from my abortion, Samantha could say to her grandmother, instead of reeling off lies. It was a drag, you know, killing the embryo, but what the hell? There are more eggs where that came from. <clears throat> It was an immaculate conception, as you could probably guess. <laughs> I hope it doesn't happen again. <laughs> but the grandmother isn't interested in Samantha's health. She's calling for a simpler reason. She has misplaced Samantha's address. She wants to get off the birthday card in the mail, the one with Abe Lincoln smiling through a hole in the middle. <clears throat> Samantha has some trouble keeping her age straight. She can't remember if she's 20, 40, or 60. <laughs> the past is a great frontier over which she wants to canter. With hope and nausea, she flips through her address book. She pours over the names, 
eagerly imagining her associations. With uncharacteristic <coughs> resolve, she stops post-haste at one name, Mark Braun. It is Wednesday night, well into the dinner hour. She is a free agent and could, in fact, just be calling to reminisce as civilized people do. Mark was her high school paramour, a boy who first impressed Samantha in fourth grade by walking around the school halls with his butt in the air, leaning on a field hockey stick and calling himself a constipated gym teacher. <laughs> Still, there is the glamour or the hunger that makes calling a man, even one whose dusty, crinkled condom package she's picked up off the floor, a viable alternative to another early night alone in the arms of her monkish bed covers. Samantha picks up the phone and calls. Friday afternoon comes around the corner suddenly, and Samantha only has a few hours to prepare for an invasion of Cupid's arrows. She buys a violet-colored pair of contact lenses for the occasion. She puts on her Brattleby High School t-shirt. At the bar, Samantha gobbles peanuts. She avoids making eye contact with herself in the mirror. But as the hour approaches for Mark to meet her here, her heart grows colder and colder. She is disgusted. Why did she call him after all these years? He never really meant anything to her. Now she has made the impression, before even meeting, that she cares. Entering the bar, Mark looks peevish in a tight-fitting jacket and slim loafers. His hair is combed into a precise shape, wrapping his skull like banana peels. <laughs> the combination of self-consciousness and suavity is remarkable, poignant even. Samantha, in spite of her reluctance, decides to go whole hog. <laughs> I wanted to tell you in all honesty, she begins, I've had some problems in my life with men, women, whatever. I've always wanted to tell my secrets to someone, and there's something about you I feel I could tell you. But where should I begin? I had a dream the other night. There was a woman in it who was very fat, and her skin wasn't hard. It was spongy. She opened a closet door, and there was an Easter basket filled with human shit. She put her hand to her mouth and started eating her own fingers. Samantha laughs. Mark laughs nervously, very nervously. <laughs> Remembering her manners, Samantha continues. But what about you? Do you still wear a blue overcoat? An overcoat, yeah. I spend half the year out west, restaurant supplies, real estate. My mother is still in Brattleby, of course, so I stay with her while I'm here. Colorado is great in the winter. Fascinating, Samantha says in a booming voice. Some teacher with pink lathery hands once told her, if you have nothing to say, at least say it loudly. <laughs> I remember your mother, she continues. She didn't seem to like you very much. <laughs> she was always yelling at you. I remember what she did that time you wet your pants. You had to clean them out in the kitchen sink. 
Letitia and Max and I waited in your room. I don't know if that was me. I don't remember that, Mark says. Well, you always were clever. Shall I tell you? I still love you. Mark has a consternated, perhaps even constipated, look on his face. Maybe he doesn't appreciate her offensive line of action. It must be hard to warm up to a torpedo. Not that he couldn't seduce her. Oh, no. Mark knows how to make the moves on any girl. He must have had five women, at least. <laughs> Samantha can see it all now. The conquistador and his soon-to-be-conquered girl sitting on a couch together. Mark edging over an inch at a time, one inch when he replaces his beer on the coffee table, one inch when he gets up to change channels, one inch when he examines her lovely earring. Did she get that from her mother? One inch, the final one, with no explanation at all. <laughs> it's hard to know whether to exhale or inhale when you approach a woman. Should you have just taken a slug of beer so that lukewarm smell dominates the airspace? <laughs> Should you have lit a cigarette or just put one out? Should you go to the bathroom first? But that might be too much planning. Mark has surely learned to add some spontaneity to the process. You've got to watch her for cues. When she extends her arms, stretching, yawning, and saying, oh, I'm so tired, it's a good time to move forward. Love, huh? Mark says at the bar, taking a drag from his cigarette. Samantha peers at Mark's glimmering forehead. He looks charming in the semi-darkness. <laughs> Aloud, she muses. Over the years, things have been funny in terms of boyfriends. I've had my heart broken a few times. I've been in love with the most garlicky individuals. In fact, I have a fascination with the mediocre. I love gas station attendants, better yet, the unemployed. <laughs> I love men who have rat's nests for hair and murderous intentions. There's something about a man who hasn't taken a shower in days, primal. I like a man who doesn't require any stupid preliminaries. It's just me and you, babe. I love a man who lies about where he's been, why he's an hour late, why he didn't show up at all. <laughs> I love a man who seems to be winking at the waitress, making a phone call when I go to the ladies' room. <laughs> but sometimes it's hard to find a balance. My therapist, oh, did I tell you I'm in therapy? <laughs> Isn't everyone? Nervous laughter again from Samantha, rejoined by Mark's fixed grin. <laughs> a balance, it's hard to... Can I just tell you something, Mark interrupts. You have a beautiful nose, so why don't you relax? You're a little anxious, it seems. Finish your drink. You haven't touched it. Go ahead. I'll be right back, okay? I'm going to the men's room. <laughs> Samantha doesn't have a beautiful nose. That should have been the tip-off. She blinks her newly violet eyes. Sure, she says, a purr of a sure. 
She waits at the bar, chin in hands. Samantha Braun, Mrs. Braun, Mrs. Mark Braun, <laughs> Samantha Brown Braun. Mark seems clearly to understand her. She has never felt so frank, so forward. At last, she's discovered the secret of romantic union. She knows she can say anything to the right man. Samantha's gin and tonic has turned into a tepid lake. The ice cubes have gone back to their mother, water, and the tonic has given up its captive princess, air. Only the gin remains poised for action. Samantha begins to tap her freshly manicured fingernails on the bar. That mark constipated after all? <laughs> <laughs> she begins watching the door with the stick figure on it. Men hoisting their pants, tugging their underwear, realigning their belts, come lumbering out like immigrants <laughs> from an underwater country. <laughs> Samantha is getting irritated. Just finish your business while you're in there. The bartender has already wiped up the bar in front of Mark's stool. Samantha <laughs> stops watching the bar bathroom door. How could a person leave in the middle of a conversation like that? How uncouth, unsatisfactory. Perhaps he was raped and murdered in the stall. <laughs> a crowbar denting his forehead. Perhaps a huge lizard has him pinned to the toilet and strips him away limb after limb. Giving the bartender a generous tip, Samantha leaves in the guise of a martyr. and I'm going to introduce Siri Bland, uh, who I met at NYU last spring. Siri is uh, an original. She's intelligent, quirky, odd, humorous. She's well-read and tough and deeply intuitive. Her poems are open to the sensual, the psychological, the political, and they have mystery and intensity. I'm glad that she's going to read tonight. Do you want to sit or do you want to stand? Mm -hmm. and whatever you like. Sure. Just sure. Okay. Watch the water. Okay. Conception. My father worked in the meat locker at Winn-Dixie, and the smell of his hands, the sawed joints and ground meat, made my mother sick. Morning she read, and everything she read, she disagreed with. She walked the beach, dug holes in the sand, and vomited. Noon, he came home to eat, but the blood in his knuckle skin wouldn't wash, and it stopped her from laying the table. Ball buster, he screamed. And it was true. 
She was piling beach pebbles in the bedroom, rubbing her abdomen to help me dig. I was her clam, her blue toenail of attachment. My eye divided into stones, and when he touched her narrow lips with his cold fingers and sang into her ear, I heard him, and even her blood couldn't wash, it, couldn't wash me away. The sky curves like a bowl over Bear Island, yellowing the quarried shore. Rowing, the skiff dips with each oar stroke. My line shimmies astern, going fishing. Here, William Gilly, delivering milk to summer queers, capsized his boat and disappeared. Drowned men swim in schools, says Alex, and mackerel nibble my five baited hooks. The broken cork-handled rod juts into my gut and I fight the fish's frantic strength. The line stiffens, points like a diviner's pronged stick, and four flapping mackerel pop the membrane of the sea. Triumphant with luck, I prop my feet against the oar locks and watch as Alex pulls hooks from gullets, ripping soggy jaw flesh. Once caught it in the neck, he snaps its spine, sends it spiraling, sinking like a spotted rock. Mackerel are greasy to eat, he says. Scales grot our briny palms. Dollops of fish blood clot the bottom of the boat. Deciding a few small deaths, we float like trash on the buoyant sea. My mother is a painter and had a number of very strange jobs to make money. One of them was making prostheses. And I've written a few poems about that. <coughs> this one um, is only indirectly related to that because she used what she learned there and applied it to her art. My mother's finger. We move sometimes twice a year, and many times packing, I came upon a red box and my mother's finger. It was a plaster porous and unpleasant. And at the bottom, where the finger should meet the hand, was rough and uneven as if it had been broken from a statue. A man lay, slathered with Vaseline on our kitchen floor. My mother, slowly, minding every mound and arch of his body, wrapped him in wet gauze. After the bandages set, she cut him free, her carpet knife gingerly outlining his torso until she could lift off his shell and he lay there, the meat of the walnut. She poured molds for ears, and often, despite the timer's warning, bubbles warded the plastic penna. These she painted purple and green until the ear was an object, a strange brooch. Perfect ears she lifted with tweezers giving them a subtle pigmentation, painting veins, royal blue, crimson, and sometimes she made noses. I was a bad child, I would not sleep. Given paragoric, a baby doll, my eyes stayed wide and dry until I heard her even breaths. I'd sneak into her bed, crook my leg over her waist like a eunuch in a harem, or as if I was riding. She had pressed her palm into my own and made a model, the line of fate, the lunar mound, the mound of Venus. We moved sometimes three times a year, and many times packing I would come upon my finger, 
porous, unpleasant, its knuckle whirling. Plum. I had torn my big toenail, riding without training wheels. He'd wrapped it in gauze and tape, drawing a face on its absent face. I lay on the couch eating a plum. My bite was a steam shovel's bucket jaw, shearing juicy shale. He sat knitting. My mother in the kitchen made pizza in, mis- in biscuit pans. She started shrieking, banging the pans against the stove racks, the sink. I can't, damn it, I can't. She ran in. My plum was in my hand. She wheeled out the front door, the screen. My mouth was wide open. Panting, I watched the needles purl, purl, knit as his spraddled fingers caught the yarn. Over the index, the ring. Out the front, out the screen, I threw the plum and followed it. It lay by the walk, a black mouth coated with sand. It spoke, I am your plum, baby. Feed me. Your food will burn the walls of your kitchen, make you dizzy with a failure you cannot eat or bear. The lover and the daughter. It was because he was a small man. Home from school, the kitchen table flipped, the milky white glass in slivers, the TV fallen from its table, the table he'd laid with possibilities, a sterile hot plate for making goat yogurt, rough napkins and raku rings, nurturing, preventative, cautious. The TV was my mother, aluminum, nitrite, plastic. He'd broken both and gone back to his garage. Kissing him smelled like going to the library for story hour. The sand packed and wet from the rain on the corrugated roof of the school's breezeway. I followed the class, single file. Horton hears a who, his tongue so delicate in my ear. A little buzz, a bee circling the catnip in my mother's herb garden. Hello, hello. I couldn't move or lift my arms, a sheaf of corn, unsheathed and green, held in his arms. Because he was a small man and his skin so thin, ropes of purple pulsed as his heart beat. A pair of round, round eyes. I listened. I unlocked the door and laughed at the flip TV, the upended table. After he fixed a car, We took it on a test drive to Washman's store for ice cream. Joking, he grabbed my knee as a warm gear shift, first, second, third. He grabbed my knee and I screamed. It was very embarrassing. (laughs) Raising the teepee. We cut the teepee poles from a forest of bamboo near Tryon, me skipping school to saw their supple green trunks and shear the leafy twigs with a hacksaw. Fifteen poles we pulled from the mud where they'd fallen, and we roped them to the top of the van. You lean the poles in the sun to dry, and sap cracked from their trunks, sticky and white. The bamboo's joints would catch rain as it dripped along the canvas, causing leaks, you said. But what could you do? Bamboo was lighter than pine, less work to prepare. Time
tying a long rope to the top of the pole, you held it upright, a spear against the sky. Ma and I lifted the others until the three fingers touched and you swung the rope, weaving pole, finger, pole. Your old girlfriend, Patty, helped, adding another pole, and my mother, wearing her mother's sunglasses, sat on your shoulders and whipped the rope until we created a scaffolding, a cage. The teepee canvas we fastened to this bamboo skeleton with shaved pine thongs. It shone white in the clearing, a dressmaker's dummy in a basted dress. From the lance, rope, and sailcloth, you made a woman. I climbed over the threshold to enroll the floor cloth you attached with thongs to the teepee. Beneath the cloth, under my bent knees, the grasses rustled and bumped, sweet-smelling as a horse's breath. The sky was an enameled cleft through the smoke flaps, which cleft to small poles you adjusted to draw the smoke when the wind blew and the fire burst upward. That night, you built a fire. We flattened and crushed the grass beneath our foam rubber mattresses, and smoke blackened the poles until they cracked like knees as the last sap escaped. Down the inside of the poles, dew dripped, slowly catching, just as you said, at each joint. But what could any of us do? Bamboo was lighter than pine, more pliable and easier to replace if and when it snapped. In the teepee, looking up from my foam mattress, the burls of the canvas seemed a dense flesh of decorative scars, the whorled skin of a cantaloupe. Your mouth was at my ear. I could hear bees lighting on the canvas wall, sucking, growing fat on the sweetness of the fruit. There was a beating in the concave bone that held your arm in its socket, and in your mouth I tasted bees, softly humming as you smoothed my face, soothing my features so that I would never be recognized again. We lay there for many days, and when each evening we would go out to meet my mother coming from work, we did not ignore each other, but rather were gay. But beneath my skin, in the cavity of the fruit, two people lodged like stones. The Map of the Heart. My mother skates a map of North Carolina, Blue Ridge to Cherry Mount, Sandy Mush, Boone to Bostick to Flat Newburn, and back to the fixed point, which is my grandmother's heart. My grandmother's heart. Her closets are gorged with tangled hairballs of jewelry knotted into plastic bags with wigs and green pennies and emptied Pepto-Bismol bottles. At dusk, her doors flap madly shut and double lock. This will keep black people out. She conquers the heart. My mother moves into her mother's heart and wrenches away the cuckoo clock. Its springs stretch like entrails or curly hair. The ticking stops. She attempts to create. My mother sets up an easel and begins to paint houses that pulse as if people were inside. Their roofs scream. They shudder on their foundations. She drives nails into the heart and hangs them. She becomes the, ba the body. In the heart, however, nothing will keep. Tomatoes rot on the sill. Jellies crack their seals and sour. For food, my mother paints country-style steak, 
Biscuits sopped in red-eyed gravy, cracklings, vinegar greens. She is wide-hipped now, short of breath, and her fingertips stick to what she touches. The hallway blooms with it, pink skin like a tomato's, supple, opaque. She looks outside. My mother squats on her haunches at the door of her heart and hollers, come home, daughter. Byzantine icon. Jesus floats in an embryo, a pair of light. He is the axis, the horizon, the clitoris of heaven. Robes flatten his forearms, shins. A narrow palm presses the painting's varnish. He wants out. Pump spit, semen, ink into his black eyes, and the pair will split a tornado of force and line, O oh, Lamb of God. Thank you. Thank you.